Hi, my name's Sonia and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, gosh, I'm so glad to be here today. Uh, I don't know if we ever drank together either, but um, between the two of us, I'm sure the campus was a more lively place. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever been to Washington State, the most important thing to know is that it had blue laws at that time and that Moscow, Idaho was only eight miles away, <laughs> which became quite a short distance. I want to thank Zan. And I want to thank Terry for being just a, a wonderful speaker buddy. And I want to thank all the committee. And I also want to thank all of you because, um, you know, it's just terrific. I came here and I instantly knew people. And I realized I knew people I had met at like the North Coast Roundup. I knew people I met at Canby. I knew people I met at Sober in the Sand. And then a number of women from our fellowship in Medford started coming. And they were glad to see me, and, and I was glad to see them. That is not the way I used to be received, and, <laughs> and it's not because I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. It's because they have been making progress towards a design for living, and I've been making progress for it towards a design for living. And because of that, we get to share lives that are reasonably happy and purposeful. And it just always, always touches me. Um, when I look at that and I look at the friendships that I've made, I met Bev that spoke last night in the early 90s at a conference in Crested Butte where, where I ended up going 13 times and I think she was there every single time. And these, fellowship, these uh, friendships that we make in the fellowship are just near and dear to me. Um, I know I'm supposed to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, but um, just to let you know that why I continue to go to meetings and, and why I continue to need this design for living and why I need to call a spiritual advisor is because I'm a real alcoholic. You may not believe that because I dress up now, but <laughs> let me give you an example. You might notice I have this sling on. I cannot use this arm. You also may notice that Julie's in the front row. She has a walker today. So about a month ago, Julie, who's cooking dinner, dinners for the first time in 32 years, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been an exciting month. Um, actually, Julie's been taking wonderful care of me. But she went in the pantry, and there was no tomato sauce. And uh, I said, well, we'll go to the store and buy some. And she goes, we have not bought store-bought tomato sauce in 15 years. You know, we have gotten healthier, and we can our own tomato sauce. We chop up the green peppers, and we chop up the onions. Note one arm. And we chop up the uh, garlic. You know, and we blanch the tomatoes, and we do all that. And I said, Julie, you're in a walker, and I have one arm. <laughs> and she says, well, I don't like store-bought tomato sauce, you know. We're trying to be healthy. Now, this is pretty funny. When I talk about healthy, I mean, I look back 65 years ago. I mean, I put things in my body that would melt plastic. <laughs> I mean, if I wanted to come out of this deal in better shape, I should have started a while ago. So, but I acquiesced. I said, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to do this. And so uh, we went down and we bought 100 pounds of tomatoes. 
there's only two of us. Uh, <laughs> we bought 100 pounds of tomatoes. And the guy, we have to get someone to help us put them in the car. And he puts them in the car and he says, do you have someone to help you unload these at home? Well, not wanting to admit we'd made a crucial error, I just said, of course we do. <laughs> yes. And then we got in the car and Julie says, Dewey, I said, no, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so we got home and uh, the next day we started canning tomatoes. It took us all day to can seven quarts. I don't know if you've done it, but it's a process. So we said, man, we're never going to get this done. <clears throat> so we talk a lot here about sponsorship. I called one of my sponsees. <laughs> Actually, I tried it out on one of Julie's sponsees first. And, <laughs> you know, because she has the ability to look pathetic. And so, um, <laughs> so she came out the next day, and the three of us canned seven quarts. Well, long story short, four days later, we had canned 32 quarts of tomatoes. I am exhausted. I go and sit in the recliner. Now, I'm not even sleeping in a bed. I'm sleeping in a recliner. And I go sit in the recliner, and, and I'm starting to relax. And, and Julie goes into town to run a few errands. And she comes back. She says, I am so excited. I found the, the best thing ever. And I said, what's that? She said, I went to Cartwright's and they had a special. I bought a case of Hatch chilies. And all we have to do is roast them, put them in bags, take the skins off, and freeze them. <laughs> One hand. <laughs> now, I've learned the 10th step about restraint of pen and tongue. And so... But I've learned tricks watching TV, you know. So when I watch football and they show the Carolina Panthers, whenever someone drops a pass, the quarterback, instead of being nasty, goes and sits on the bench and puts the towel over his head. <laughs> so I went and sat in a chair and put a towel over my head. <laughs> uh, it saves me from a lot of them. So if you're going to go to the workshop this afternoon on the eighth and ninth step, these are the kinds of tricks you will learn. Okay, so I put the towel over my head, and I, I didn't have to make amends. And uh, so the next day, we, Julie had never roasted peppers. She had always bought peppers, and I had roasted them. And so she didn't think it was too hard. Well, I don't know if you've tried it, but peeling off those little black peels is just a work of art. And she was getting discouraged, so I started doing it with one hand. And um, we are still finding little bits of black chili peel everywhere and we finally got through some of them I think we did about did we do about 60 of them yeah we did about 60 of them and and it was getting time to leave and I'd been to my physical therapist on Monday by the way my physical therapist first of all she's insensitive <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't care much about my feelings I go that hurts and she goes mm-hmm one day Julie was there and she's doing all this stuff, and I'm not saying anything. Julie says, Sonia, does that hurt? I said, yeah, but I don't want to say anything. I don't want to encourage her. Um, <laughs> so anyway, she was talking about her weekend, and she was saying how she loves doing nothing on the weekend, but her husband has a food truck, and someone had given them something, and they'd made this chimichurra, and then the next day someone gave them something, and they had to make something else. But this weekend she was looking forward to a quiet time. So I loaded up all those chilies. <laughs> I took them into the physical therapist, 
And all the way on the drive over here, I got the giggles. I could just imagine, you know, he's saying to her, oh, honey, I think you can peel just one more. <laughs> so my alcoholism is alive and well. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love having fun here. I know we have serious stuff, but we are certainly not a glum lot. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about what it was like for me growing up. I was uh, from a family where everybody drank except my grandfather. Um, my family drank a lot. They did the best they could raising us. But, you know, when you're in an alcoholic household, uh, things are unpredictable and things happen, you know. And so um, I used to think everybody lived like that. The only relative I had that didn't drink was my grandpa. And... Uh, I asked him one, you know, it seemed to me very odd that someone didn't drink. And so I asked my grandpa one time why he didn't drink, and he said, well, you know, I don't know. He said, what I realized when I was about 18 was every time I drank, I got in trouble. And, uh, or every time I got in trouble, I'd been drinking. And he said, you know, I drink a little bit, and I noticed that I started having trouble with my personality. Now, this was before Alcoholics Anonymous was there but it's sort of an AA story. He said, so I joined a church, and they taught me some basic principles of living, and first and foremost was to be of service to others and find how we can help our fellows. And I got involved in that church, and I haven't had a drink since. And he was one of the finest men I knew. We didn't drink in his home when we went over for Sunday dinner, but my parents had two or three drinks before we went there just to get tuned up for the afternoon. And... Uh, Dinner was sort of an unreliable event at our house. And what I found over time is that it got later and later and later. Uh, by the time I was an adult, sometimes it didn't happen at all. We were a demonstrative family. Um, we had fist fights at the dinner table. I had a friend once and when I was uh, in junior high, and I invited her over for dinner. And the second time I invited her, she said, I can't come to your house anymore. All that chaos gives me an upset stomach. I couldn't even figure out what she was talking about. I thought all families worked like that. My dad was a disciplinarian. You know, if we did something wrong, he'd have us stand at attention against the wall or do push-ups or whatever he could think of in the moment. He had been a drill instructor. And <laughs> so he had a lot of good ideas. But uh, I'll just give you... When I got sober, when I got sober, my sponsor said... Uh, are you, do you come from a family of alcoholics? And I said, no, not really. You know, there's some drinking that goes on in my family, but I, I think I'm the only alcoholic. And so Thanksgiving rolled around and, and, I, and you know, you're not supposed to go where there's drinking early on without taking someone with you. So I invited my sponsor to Thanksgiving. <laughs> I told my family they were instantly terrified and uh, they were on their best behavior and really cut back on their drinking. And we arrived there, and I said, now, don't worry. Dinner will be two or three hours late. And uh, so we get there, and I, I want to describe the scene as she described it. Well, we get there, and everybody's as cordial as can be, and dinner's only an hour late because they're being special for my sponsor. And uh, so here's what it looked like, you know. My sister and brother-in-law are sitting in the living room. They're drinking Manhattans with beer chasers. 
Um, my dad's drinking his scotch. Everybody's kind of running around. And they called dinner. And, uh, and I had forewarned her. I said, don't worry, everyone drinks wine with dinner. And so they called dinner, and um, everyone got up and left the room. And she said, where are they going? I said, they're going to get the wine. And she said, oh, okay. And in a couple minutes, everyone comes back, and we go into dinner, and everybody set their bottle of wine by their place. <laughs> oh, gosh. We left there, and I thought I was the problem, right? We left there, and she said, you know, Sonia, I want to point out a couple of things to you. Many, many normal drinkers don't drink Manhattans with beer chasers, and quite often at festive occasions, they put one or two bottles on the table and everybody shares them. <laughs> my family were my drinking buddies, and if you're new, one of the things I had to do in my first year of sobriety was not spend time around them, and I cried and cried and cried because I thought that my relationship with my family was over, but I couldn't be around my family and be sober at the same time. And my sponsor said it wouldn't always be like that. Between then and now, I have become a program of example for my family. I'd like to tell you that um, some of them quit drinking, and that never happened. But, um, but they've come to respect. They used to try and convince me I wasn't an alcoholic. And on, my, on the first Christmas, and I got sober in, uh, on July 11th, 1986. And uh, that's my sobriety date. And that first Christmas, I know I forgot to tell you earlier. <laughs> that first Christmas, my dad gave me a bottle of 30-year-old aged dry whiskey. <laughs> uh, he was sure this was just a passing fad. And so I had to stay away with him for, for much of my first year of sobriety. But over time, I was able to be a program of attraction for my family. Not that any of them got sober, but I was able to be there and at least be able to show them the kind of changes that happened to me as a result of having a design for living. And I remember I had uh, just under five years sober and I lost my business. And uh, I went over to my parents' house and, and told them I'd lost this business and it was really interesting. They had spent four years telling me on every possible occasion that I wasn't a real alcoholic. And the very first thing they said was, you're not gonna take a drink, are you? You know, they liked the way I lived. They liked the example of my sobriety. And uh, I'll always be grateful for that. So growing up, life was pretty uncertain. You know, um, things didn't happen on time. My mother wouldn't always remember to pick me up from school. <clears throat> Nothing I have to tell you about, because it's typical drunk stuff. But my grandfather was the stabilizing force in my life, you know. And he and my grandmother would have me over after school and, uh, and I would get to have cookies there and milk and things that normal families do. And every now and then I'm asking about the drinking and he said, oh, I have a wonderful life today, but whenever I drank, there was a possibility I'd get in trouble. And that tended to be true. In fact, when, uh, when my drinking progressed, people would say things to me like, you know, if you quit drinking, your life will get better. And I thought, why should I quit drinking for something I don't even know is going to work? Let my life get better, and then I'll think about quitting drinking. <laughs> that was the arrogance of the alcoholic, you know. And, 
and I just couldn't imagine a life. If I went to someone's house for dinner and they didn't serve alcohol, you can bet I was never going back there. I mean, how boring is that? I could, I could really relate the other night um, when our Al-Anon speaker was talking about being attracted to the person in the room that was exciting. You know, that was me. I was, at, I was after exciting. And uh, that's kind of how my life went. So I could tell you a lot about my drinking. I could tell you a lot about my childhood. But um, for the most part, it was just, just the usual feelings of a person that never fit in. It was the feelings that we all talk about, you know, and, and I've heard it described a lot of ways, the hole inside of me, the inadequacy and all the stuff. But um, then I heard a speaker, you know, and, and the whole reason I'm up here today is I'm trying to sell a little hope. That's what the deal is here, you know. And so by sharing my experience, strength, and hope, perhaps someone in the room can hear your story and my story. And then we all get to progress in our sobriety. And... Uh, so if you got a lot of hope out of the tomato story, like, I, like if you're new and you're having trouble wondering if this program will work for you, you know, <laughs> so you should get some hope out of the fact that here we are um, all these years later, you know, and we're still doing stuff like that, but we can still stay sober. On the other hand, if you've been sober for a while and you listen to my tomato story and you're thinking that... Um, Wow, you know, I was hoping to make some spiritual progress. I'm, I'm hoping that wasn't too disappointing for you. Um, but anyway, this woman told this story at one of the first meetings I was at, and it described my feelings exactly. And she said uh, that they always had a big, thank, a big Christmas event at her house. And at that Christmas event, they'd all pass out the presents and open them. And they passed out all the presents, and everyone opened their presents, and she opened all of her presents. And then she started to cry. And her grandma came up to her and says, Honey, why are you crying? She said, I didn't get what I wanted. And she said, Well, what did you want? I don't know, but I know I didn't get it. <laughs> that was the story of my life. I would think if I got if I got this thing, if I got this job, if my parents really loved me, if I was from Sally's family where they had dinners on time, that my life would be okay. And yet I would get the, th oh, I never got the dinners on time. But if I did some of those things and got the things I wanted, I would be okay and I would get them and then that wasn't it. And that went on for my whole life. I did not have a solution for living. Um, I got married, and uh, I never really thought my drinking, you know, when people talk about, you know, you're, you're doing your steps, and you're doing your fourth and fifth step, and your eighth and ninth step, and harms you've done to others, and how your alcohol affected your life. And I never really thought my alcohol affected my life a lot. And then, uh, over time, more is revealed. You know, and I remember one incident where I had really wanted to go to college, and... Um, I was in high school, I was on the debate team. And I was on the debate team and we were, we were getting ready for the state championships. And some of my older friends were going out to have a Saturday night. And I went out with them and I was drinking um, beer with vodka with beer chasers. And I uh, ran into a tree and got a concussion. I was walking. 
And so they put me in the back of the truck and they took me home and they carried me in and my mother rushed me into the bedroom and she closed the door. Well, my father had said if I ever came drunk, I came home drunk, I could never come home again. So she hid me with alcohol poisoning. She hid me in my bedroom for three days so he wouldn't throw me out of the house. And I missed that debate championship. And my debate partner with his fill-in got a scholarship to Stanford. And uh, that was the story of my life. Did I say that had to do with my drinking? No. I said, you know what? The alcoholics Lamont. You know, it's just not fair. It's just not fair, the things that happen to us. And so <clears throat> eventually I got married. And uh, that marriage ended after about five years. And that marriage, too, suffered from the effects of my alcoholism. Um, he was in administration in the university system, and that involved a lot of entertaining. And when you have a wife like me that is the first to arrive in the last, well, first we have to prepare for the event so we'll be able to talk to people. You know, Then we drink through the event because it's sociable and we want everyone else to feel at home. These are always all the biggest university donors. And uh, during which time I always felt I needed to get progressively more entertaining. And, um, <laughs> You know, and then we were the first to arrive and the last to leave. And I was an embarrassment to that man, and he eventually left me. And I thought, that blank, 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 I never associated it with my drinking. So it wasn't until I was sober that I had a really good look at it. I'll tell you one story. I don't have to tell you a lot about my drinking. I became a daily drinker at 18 years of age, and I drank daily from then until I was 40. And that's when I got sober. When I took a drink, everything got better. I didn't consider it a recreational event. I considered it a necessity. It was, the, it was the elixir that made me able to walk among you without causing a lot of damage. And, uh, and I never, ever looked at it as a problem. I'll tell you the honest truth. I thought the real problem started whenever I wasn't drinking. You know, I just could not function in society like everybody else at that time. And, um, well, I'll tell you about one incident, and uh, it, it kind of describes a lot of things for me, is that, um, in fact, I was, reminded of, I was reminded of it by Cheryl the other day because it's just the epitome of my drinking. I was pretty sure that I did not have a drinking problem. Drinking was a solution, and the problem was everybody else. I had bad employers. I, well, I didn't learn until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I came from a dysfunctional family. I just thought we all drank a lot. And, um, but it turns out I was from a dysfunctional family. I had issues, and uh, people just weren't nice to me. And so I thought, people are the problem. Well, down the street from me, there was an accident, and it was a big refrigeration truck with the box on the back. And uh, so I went down there after the accident, and I said, what are you going to do with that box? And um, they said, I don't know, and I bought it from them cheap. Now, by this time, I was working in construction. I was a licensed pharmacist, but that career was not going well. And <laughs> I guess I should say I was overdoing. Um, so I'm working in construction, and I know a lot of other people who've had alternate careers like that. So I go across the bridge to a construction site where a guy I know is. I have him come over with his big um, Caterpillar tractor, and he digs a big hole in my backyard. Big, big deep hole. 
and we pour cement footings down on the corners of those holes. And we go down the street, and we get some chains, and we chain up that box. And we bring that box around to the house, and we get it positioned just right, and we drop it down in that hole. Then I build some forms. I order an entire truck of concrete, and we build stairs going down into, um, into that underground container. <laughs> I take some conduit, and I bring electricity into that container. I put my easy chair in that container. <laughs> I was a scotch drinker, so I put some of that there. I brought in lighting. I put some wine and to make sure no one broke into And I, I technically called it a wine cellar. And so, <laughs> so that no one would break into it, I put the most expensive schlag lock on it. And, uh, and I thought, OK, I'm going to come home. I'm going to go down those stairs. I'm going to sit in my container. I'm going to be all by myself, and the world will be OK. That was how small my world had gotten shortly before I quit drinking. After I quit drinking, my sponsor insisted that I be sociable, which was horrible. And, uh, and so we would have potlucks at my house, and I'd say, and people go, what is that? And I'd go, oh, that's a root cellar. <laughs> that baby never seen a root, I'm telling you. Anyway, that man that I was married to left me, and he left me because of my drinking. He didn't say so, but I found that out as a result of the steps that I did in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I did what the book says. I sought lower companions. And I went into bars that ladies like me shouldn't go into, and I had friends that ladies like me shouldn't have. I was, uh, I was actually raped on more than one occasion. And I used to get a lot of mileage after that, and I'd spend a great deal of time talking to you about it. But the real fact of the matter is that uh, when I took a drink, I put myself at the mercy of the universe. And when I put myself at the mercy of the universe, I have no idea what's going to happen next. I certainly don't think those things were my fault. You know, I don't think I was bad because that happened. But today, those are the things I have trouble seeing my part in. And today, I look back at those occasions and I see my part, that when I put myself at the mercy of the universe, when I seek lower companions so that I feel better, there's a good chance. When I go into those bars and I leave with men on motorcycles who have guns, there's a good chance that good things aren't going to happen for me. And it took me a fair amount of recovery and some excellent step work with my sponsor because I didn't think I had a part on that. I came to you as the consummate victim with no idea of how all that happened to me. Um, during that period of time, I found a lower companion. I latched onto her right away. And, uh, and I thought, okay, here's a person that is like so crummy, she will never leave me. And I was happy with that, and I settled for it. I settled for that, and, um, and then one day, she left me. And I was more devastated than I had been by my divorce. I was more devastated than I'd been by any of those events I've just described. Because here was a person, I mean, I considered myself a good catch. <laughs> Perception is everything. And, uh, <laughs> And this woman was leaving me. I thought she just didn't know what she was missing out on. So I got out my 357, and uh, 
because, you know, she tended not to listen to me, and I thought that would get her attention. And so I, got, I took out my 357, and I went over to talk to her. And uh, when the police came, <laughs> I was naked with the 357. I'm not sure why naked. In fact, earlier, earlier, <laughs> when she was talking about if we ever met at Washington State, I had this habit of taking my clothes off when I drank. I am so relieved when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and no one who's been where I've been is wearing those clothes. I mean, it's like, it would be so embarrassing. <laughs> nope, they're not mine. Okay. <laughs> so... They asked me if I'd been drinking, and I said no, because, you know, if they tell you, if they ask you if you've been drinking and you say yes, they tell you you should quit. And so I said no, and so they took me and they, they put me in the lockup on a 5150. For those of you that don't know, that's the wacka-wacka charge. And, uh, and you're going to do harm to yourself or others, and they've got me in there. I'm still naked. They've got me strapped up, and, and they come in and talk to me, and... And eventually things move forward and, and I get um, sentenced. And so I'm put on probation, but I have to see this um, psychiatrist twice a week. Now, this story started with a lie, and I don't know about you guys, but we alcoholics are excellent liars. And, uh, and I'm loyal to the lie. Okay, I'm also a fisherman. <laughs> We're not too good on the truth either. So, um, so anyway, I, try, I tell them lies. They make diagnoses made from those lies. They put me on medication, and I go out and live the diagnosis. And so when I came to you, I'd been diagnosed with three different um, psychological disorders. I, I was bipolar, and I had an affective disorder and, and uh, some other thing that was going on. And, and I was trying to live that because I didn't want them to know the lie. I didn't want them to know I was just a common drunk that screwed up and in a blackout took a gun over to someone's house to convince them that I was the best catch they ever had. <laughs> so, the other thing that happens when an alcoholic lies is after you've lied three times, I know you people know this, when you've lied three times it becomes the truth. So in a short period of time, I thought I had those diagnoses, and I was definitely living them. And so uh, a series of things happened, and some people were insulting my drinking and the nerve of them, and I just, I was like, oh, I'll show them, I'll just quit. And I had said I was an alcoholic for a long time. I just had never decided to quit drinking. And so I thought, I'll just quit. And, man, the first day wasn't too bad, and, and then the second day I got the shakes, and, like, by the third day, I was really, really sick. And, uh, but I played on this fast-pitch double-A softball team, and so I went out to play a softball game, and there were about 200 people there, and my coach said something I didn't like, like, hello. And uh, <laughs> you will not believe this. I was 40 years old, and I reared back, and I decked her. This was one of the kindest women I know. This woman had been wonderful to me. When I would fall asleep on the floor of her house while we were partying, she'd just put a blanket over me. She never said a word. You know, she'd be so kind. And I was mortified that I'd done that, and I was even more, more mortified that I'd done it in front of all those people. And I, uh, I went home. I just fled, and I went home, and I just thought, my God, what's wrong with me? 
and uh, and I felt horrible about it, you know, and and I thought about it, and eventually the evening wore on, and and I called her on the phone because she was a wonderful woman, and I said, Jan, I said, you know, I'm I'm so sorry, I I'm having a problem with my personality. <laughs> <laughs> But I also said, for some God-given reason, I said, and I'm trying to quit drinking. And she says, are you willing to go to any length? <laughs> ah, I have no idea what that means, so, but I'm a, I'm a good alcoholic. I'm making a viable apology here, so I say, sure I am. She says, I'll be right over. <laughs> it took her 45 minutes to make a five-minute drive. 45 minutes, because she sat down and she read the entire chapter working with others because she'd been waiting so long for this day. Now, if you're new and you're worried about how you stick out like a sore thumb when you're not drinking, that's what I worried about anyway when I was first in AA, I have to tell you, I had been around this woman for five years. I had never noticed she wasn't drinking. You know, so uh, that's the reality of how it is. And she came over and she talked to me, and she told me her story. And she told me that she, how confusing it had been, that she had no idea she had a disease, that she had no idea she was powerless over alcohol, and that she would want to drink one or two drinks, but would tend to overdo. And then she'd have the same screw-ups that she'd had before. And when she came to Alcoholics Anonymous, that they had told her, you know, you have a disease, you have an allergy of the body that when, when normal people take a drink, they have a second one, they might get a little bit sleepy, a little bit oozy, and they go, that's enough. When we have a drink, it tells us, I want more. I want more. And the more we drink, the more it tells us, and the less we're able to stop. Which wouldn't be too bad, except we also have an obsession of the mind. And that obsession, if you look in the dictionary, it's a thought that drives out all other thoughts. And as long as I'm trying to consider, even now in sobriety, whether there's some way, some day, I'll get over it, can take a drink, that thought about drinking is going to eventually drive out all of their thoughts. And so she said, it wasn't until I really accepted that I'm an alcoholic and I can't drink that we can then turn that obsession to something else and turn that obsession to being obsessed with our recovery. And that when you take the first drink, when that obsession of the mind, you know it lies to us. We don't drink because of our circumstances. We don't drink because we had a bad day, you know, because someone flushed the stuffed animal down the toilet. You know, we don't drink over stuff like that. We drink because of the lie. We drink because I tell myself, this time it'll be different. I'm more sensitive than you, and I just can't stand life any longer without alcohol. Well, if I only drink scotch, it won't be too bad. Well, I'm just going to put a little milk in this brandy, like the guy in the book. And then once that happens, we've triggered the craving. We've triggered the craving, and the craving triggers the allergy, and we're done for. I don't know how many times. In fact, when I came to a Okay, so she's back on track here. Boom. Okay. We're here. I'm back. So she tells me all that. She tells me her story. She tells me how she drank. But she tells it to me from that perspective. So I finally, it was such a relief. I don't know about you. I could not figure out what was wrong with me. I knew I had to drink to survive. 
But I wanted to know the answer to two questions. Why can't I drink like I used to, and why can't I stop when I want to? I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you can answer those two questions, and I could get back to a life that worked. And so she says, well, I'm going to, excuse me, she says, I'm going to take you to an AA meeting in the morning. And uh, she was a smart alcoholic. She had worked with a lot of wet drunks. She said, I'll be spending the night. <laughs> I loved her. Anyway, and the next morning I got up, I said, I don't believe I can go to that meeting. And I was really, really sick by then. And she had worked with wet drunks, and, and she... Um, she got up in my cupboard and she got down the scotch and she gave me a drink so I would be well enough to get to my first AA meeting. And that was on July 10th, 1986, so my sobriety date is July 11th. And we went to that meeting and I heard you all talking. Thank you. I heard you all talking, you know, about recovery and this and that and telling your stories and I thought, well, that's fine and good, but you guys all have a drinking problem and I'm nuts. I'm bipolar, I have an affective disorder, and some kind of a personality, whatever. And, uh, and so I didn't think this deal would work. But thank God. See, that's how my God works in my life when I don't even know there is a God. Is that, thank God, I had punched her at that softball game because as a good alcoholic, I am loyal to my apology. And so I kept going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because I was making good on my apology to Jan. And... Uh, and I kept going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and, and at about 60 days, and I was going like twice a day, and I did not go through a recovery center. I detoxed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and these wonderful women, these wonderful women came, and they would come an hour before the meeting, and they would tell me to shower. You know, they would come, and they'd help make sure I had something to eat, and they'd take me to the meeting. They took me to ice cream afterwards. I hadn't had ice cream in 20 years. You know, but they did things like that, and they did that twice a day, and I didn't know their sponsors had assigned them. I just thought they were wonderful people. <laughs> oh, well. And uh, so then at 60 days, I got well, and so I wanted to go down to about twice a week, and my life wasn't going too well. I, they had said to get a sponsor, but I hadn't found anyone quite perfect enough for me, and, and they weren't answering my question anyway of how can I drink like I used to. So... There was a gal I really liked. It turns out it was Julie. I really liked her. And, and so I wanted to tell her I was leaving Alcoholics Anonymous, and I still wanted to be her buddy. You can imagine how that went over. <laughs> so I go over to her house, and I know we're intuitive, you know, and I know that she's not going to like this, right? And so uh, <laughs> I'm humming and hawing around. She says, listen, I work nights, and I have to go to work, and I don't have any more time. You're obviously terminally shy. And so, yes, I'll be your sponsor. <laughs> ah, and I'll see you at the meeting tomorrow night. And so I get the meeting tomorrow night. I'm still working up to leaving. And, and after the meeting, she does the sponsor thing. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been a victim of that, but they pretend they really like you, so they put one arm around you. It's really so you cannot escape. I just want to make that clear right now. And so she puts the one arm around me, and, and she says, what's up? I said, I'm leaving Alcoholics Anonymous. The program doesn't work for me. She goes, really? I said, yeah. 
She said, you have a lot of nerve. She said, first of all, you've only had a sponsor for three hours. <laughs> and second of all, you're not in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't have a sponsor. You haven't worked the steps. You haven't changed anything in your life. And how dare you sully the reputation of Alcoholics Anonymous by pretending that you're a part of it. Whoa! I'll tell you. She had her arm around me. I couldn't carefully consider a new sponsor. <laughs> uh, I never had 13 sponsors, but I was considering two at that point. Anyway, um, and so that began my wonderful journey in this program. And, you know, she knew I was really sick. You know, she knew that I was a really bad alcoholic, and so she didn't do like a step a month or anything like that. We worked all those steps in the next two and a half months because I was in the hallway. When I was drinking, I had a solution, and that solution was alcohol. When I got sober, I had a fellowship to get me through that detoxing period of time, and then I had nothing. I didn't have my old life. I didn't have my new life. And I was pretty sure this wouldn't work for me because I was pretty sure I was crazy. She said, we're going to start working the steps. I said, well, I don't think I can work the steps. I have uh, multiple personalities. <laughs> she says, I don't care as long as they all work the steps. <laughs> I said, I don't have a higher power either. She said, well... Don't worry about that either. I'll be your higher power, and I'll tell you when you need another one. <laughs> so everything I wanted to complicate, she simplified. And I began my real journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I worked those steps, and I had worked all the steps by the time I had about eight months. And I wasn't sure I was getting the goodies out of the program. And then one morning, because I am a person that wants to start at the top, I want the goodies right off the bat. And... Uh, one morning I woke up, and I realized when I woke up that I had been asleep all night. One of the reasons I drank was because of some of these issues I had and because of the things that had happened to me when I put myself in harm's way. I had terrible nightmares, and I couldn't sleep at night. And I would drink, and sometimes I'd get halfway down the hall, and when I would start back, and, and I'd get halfway down the hall, and I would wake up, and then I'd have to come back and have a drink and get ready to do that process again. When I was first sober, I'd call my sponsor. This is interesting. You know, I, at 11 o'clock, I wouldn't call because I didn't want to bother her. And at midnight, I wouldn't call because it was too late and I'd really bother her. And then at 2 o'clock, when I was desperate, I'd call. <laughs> and so she'd tell me the things that you've all heard. No one ever died from lack of sleep. Um, and then she had me start doing spiritual things, like I want you to do all your ironing and call me when you're done. I want you to clean your kitchen. She just gave me stuff to do and call. She was uh, active in, uh, Julie was a GSR and a DCM and was really, really active in this program. And she was the kind of sponsor when she was going to an, an area conference, she loaded all the people she sponsored in the car and took us all with her. We couldn't understand anything that was going on, but she wanted us exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous outside, our, outside of our local community. And, and I began going to a lot of meetings, and I began getting involved. And here's what I know today, and this is a story that my friend Otto tells that um, is so on the money. It's like we talk about the fellowship and we talk about the program. 
So if I were getting ready to climb a mountain and I go up that mountain by myself, and at the top of the mountain is a big book and a bottle of booze, there's a good chance that the bottle of booze might win. I go up the mountain again with the big book, and now I've read the big book, and I go up there and there's a bottle of booze at the top. The bottle of booze might win, the big book might win. But now I go up that mountain, and I've got Gay with me, and I've got Kelly with me, and I've got my other friends with me, and we all go up that mountain, and there's a big book and there's a bottle of booze. The bottle of booze doesn't have a chance. And that's how this program works for me. Julie talked about the period of time last night um, when her mother was so sick and when I was unemployed. I had, that's when I had lost my business and, um, and I couldn't get a job. And so I came up to Southern Oregon with a travel trailer. Just before we lost the business, we had bought a trailer and we were going to sell the business and travel all around the country. And uh, by this time, uh, Julie was like the first healthy relationship I had ever been in. You know, she made me wait till a year before I could even ask her out. The very first time I told her I was attracted to her, she said two things. The first thing she said was, why on earth would I be interested in you and all your garbage? I have worked very hard in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've worked very hard in Al-Anon. I've worked the steps. I have a design for living, and I lead a spiritual life. And you think I want you in it. And the second thing she said is, I don't have anything to do with anyone who doesn't have a year, and you need a new sponsor. So the net result of that is I lost the best sponsor I ever had at that time. And, uh, and I said, well, when I get a year, will you go out with me? She said, get a year and find out. <laughs> so a year and two minutes later, um, I called and I said, let's get together. She says, that's not what we do. We date. You invite me on a date, you pick me up, and you take me somewhere. And, and she said, and I have just the thing. So she arranged all these things that had, like, large groups. She actually wanted me to get to know her, as opposed to my usual MO. And so I leave that getting to know for a little later. So, um, well, she, was no, she wasn't perfect either. You know, to, to this date, you know, when I sign cards... I sign them number 33. <laughs> we'd be on these trips and we'd be riding along and Julie'd tell me some story about Candy and she'd tell me some story about Lois. And so unbeknownst to her, I was writing all these names down. <laughs> so about three years into our relationship, you know, I give her a, a birthday card and I sign it number 33. <laughs> she says, what's this? I said, well, I got these 32 other names here. <laughs> 33 is going to be the last one on yours. <laughs> and I've had just a wonderful, wonderful journey in sobriety, you know. And, um, and, you know, I tell that story about those women in Alcoholics Anonymous getting me sober because quite often today we get confused. We get confused between Alcoholics Anonymous and treatment centers. They support each other really well. And treatment centers get people detoxed and over that. However, they're not how we work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if those women, instead of taking me to a meeting, 
I don't know if they'd taken me to a treatment center if I ever would have gone or recovered. And so uh, when someone, when I have a 12-step call today, or particularly when people I sponsor do and we go, I never take a person to treatment unless they ask me to. I share my story. I take them to a meeting and I take them out somewhere afterwards. Um, this doesn't always go perfectly. Uh, when Julie, we did a lot more 12-step calls when I was first sober, you know, and so we had this one gal, and, and so Julie calls me, and she says, you know, there's this gal, and, and she's really bad, and we're going to pick her up and take her to a meeting, and we get over there, and this gal is not attractive. She's older, she's disheveled, she walks with a cane, which she rattles all over, and she smells bad. And we take her to the meeting, and she's disruptive, and she causes all kinds of trouble. And after the meeting, uh, Julie says to me, I have something I have to go do. I want you to take her to coffee. <laughs> coffee? <laughs> this is going to be so embarrassing. She looks at me, and she says, well, aren't you the one? <laughs> aren't you the one? with an ego that can't remember what you were like and you don't want to be embarrassed. You know, we all, uh, we all want to work with the attractive ones. But these are the alcoholics that really need our help. And you need to let go of your ego and take her to coffee. So I take her to coffee. I pick her up the next night. I know what she's going to say. So I take her to coffee again. And I do this for two or three nights. And then I, I come to a realization <laughs> I don't know why I didn't get it sooner, but I sponsor people. So I call one of my sponsees. I say, we're going to pick up this wet drunk for a meeting. <laughs> and we take her to the meeting, and she's rattling her cane, and she's being disruptive, and nothing's going well, and she's just making a spectacle of herself. And after the meeting, I said, OK, Jane, I want you to take her to coffee. <laughs> she says, coffee? It'll be so embarrassing. I look at her, I go, aren't you the one? <laughs> Sobriety's been a great joy for me. By the way, I say those things, but I have to tell you, I love sponsorship. I sponsor some of the gals that are here today, and, and I've loved my sponsor. And, and you know, this particular, I love Seaside. I love the little yellow house, and I love the conferences here. And... Uh, you know, a number of years ago, I was trying to think of just when it was, and, and uh, I think it was in about 2006. Um, I, I had a job, and, and I had become employable. I started doing things like showing up on time, not giving my opinion unless it was asked for. You know, things that just make you a major success. And uh, <laughs> I had gone back to school. I had gone back to school at that point. I had always said... I could get a doctorate if I want to, and my sponsor said the first thing you have to do is apply. <laughs> and so I applied and uh, you know, took the graduate record exams and got into the doctoral uh, program, and, uh, and I was scared to death. I was scared to death. And you know what I found out? Just if you do the homework and the assignments and ask for help, you're ahead of half the people. And so uh, it took me about five or six years to complete that doctorate. My mother had always wanted me to do that. My mother had gotten very sick at that time, and, and uh, she got sick in Sacramento on my, on my parents uh, on the way to a cruise. And she was in the hospital down there for a couple months. And when I went down there, um, 
they thought she wasn't going to make it through the night. And I get there, and my whole family's there, and they give us the bad news. And uh, all my family leaves the hospital and goes out to where their car is in the parking lot. And I look out that third-story window, and I can see them all out there using the only tool in their toolbox. They're all having a drink right out of the bottle. And I went to a phone, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous in, Central, in Citrus Heights. And... Uh, and I said, you know, my mom's really sick in the hospital. My whole family's drinking in the parking lot, and I want to stay sober. They say, honey, you stay right there. We're going to be there. Those people came in shifts, people I'd never met before, and they spent the whole night with me. They had me go to their meetings. They invited me to their potlucks. They were like my second home group. My mother was in the hospital for two months. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is there for me whenever I reach out and ask. And so I, uh, eventually they said, well, you know, honey, your mother's not going to get well. We're going to send her home um, for three to five weeks of comfort care and hospice. And so we brought her home to Chico, California by ambulance. <clears throat> and I got to be the kind of daughter I had never been. When I came to you, I blamed my parents for everything. It was my dysfunctional home that caused my problems. And, uh, and I had made verbal amends to my mother, but I had never really done those living amends to let her know how much she counted. And uh, <clears throat> so she needed constant care. She was on two IVs, and, and she was a two-person transfer. And so my sister, my, I have a twin sister, and my twin sister would um, take care of her one weekend, and I'd take care of the other weekend, and we'd have help during the week. And uh, my mother was never non-terminal and she lived 11 years. We lived in Oregon, and it was a four-hour and 15-minute drive. And every other weekend, most of the time, Julianne died, but sometimes just Julie, bless her heart, and, and sometimes just me. And we'd leave Friday afternoon and get down there in time to hook her up to her IV. She couldn't take in any uh, nutrition, so all her nutrition was intravenous for all that time. And... Uh, We'd take care of her Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday night. And I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and drive up to Oregon, and Julie would drop me off at work on her way home. And what a blessing. What a blessing of the program that was, that I got to make that amends to my mother. Because you know what? She didn't have the tools of this program. She put a roof over my head. She cared about me. And she was the best mother she could be. I just judged her by what I thought all of yours were like. And so, when they said, go get your doctorate, my mother had always wanted me to get a doctorate. And uh, so when I eventually, I wasn't going to go through the hooding up in Idaho at Idaho State University when I got my doctorate. And uh, my sponsor said, you know, you may be the only hope that some mother because I was over 50 by then, that some mother sitting in the stands ever has that she can get an education. And uh, my twin sister, my twin sister who hasn't found this program like I have, she flew all the way up there because my mother couldn't travel and wanted someone in the family there. My mother paid for it. And she flew all the way up there to see my hooding with my doctorate. And my mother for one of the first times, I think, in my life, was actually truly proud of me. I think that was the moment in her mind that Alcoholics Anonymous worked. I mean, the fact that I wasn't puking on people and stealing their stuff, that never meant very much to her. But those were the amends that I made to my mother. Um, 
So getting back to wherever I was 10 minutes ago. Oh, yeah, I was in Seaside, Oregon. Okay, I was in Seaside, Oregon in 2006. And the reason I was here is my sponsor, Marianne, and Julie's sponsor, Virginia, had this idea that the four of us should come up to Seaside to It's a She Thing together. And, uh, you know, I was real busy. I had a lot of self-important things to do. But I had just been to Hawaii, and I'd had a, a real change in Hawaii. My friend Charlie, I was telling him, I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but I was in the AA slump where I thought that... Um, Life was pretty boring. I wasn't making much spiritual progress. Was I going to have to keep listening to the same people say the same things that I already knew they were going to say in the meetings, and I wasn't even listening? And he had said to me, you know, have you taken advantage of the sixth and seventh step? And I said, oh, yeah, I've done those. They're only a sentence long. And, uh, <laughs> and he spent some time with me. He said, well, we think of it in terms of righting our wrongs. But you know, they are the limitless steps. They are the steps that allow you to be whatever woman you want to be. You can set your sights on the woman that you would, and I wanted to be the woman my grandfather would have, would have admired and loved. And you can set your sights like that, and every night when you do your 10th step, you can see the progress you've made towards those goals. And uh, he had talked to me, and a fellow named Dave had talked to me, and. And I had gotten re-inspired as a result of that in Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the great advantages of going to meetings when you're traveling and outside your own community. And I had just come back from there when I thought I was too busy to come to this conference. And uh, I couldn't pass up coming. I thought, well, maybe this is part of my new spiritual path. And uh, so I came with Julie and Marianne and Virginia. Well, then there was another benefit, because I thought if all her other sponsees saw me coming to Seaside with her, they'd know she liked me best. <laughs> you know how we are. So anyway, at that time, uh, I took a long walk. Sherry, Sherry R. Was, a, was one of the speakers that year, and she was a good friend of mine. We met every year at Crested Butte. And we took a long walk on the beach, you know, and... and uh, and, and she told me how, as a result of these steps and what was happening, that all the promises were coming true for her and that she was getting all she ever wanted all along. And she told me some of the things that had come true in her life and her relationship and what she'd accomplished in her career and, uh, and all the hope of the future. And she and I used to share things like that. And we had this wonderful, wonderful walk. And I told her some of the wonderful things that had happened for me. And, <clears throat> some of the things I hoped had happened next, and she was hoping to write a book. And the next day, I, I went downtown, and I went for a walk with Marianne, my sponsor. And Marianne talked to me <clears throat> about some of the things that were coming true in her life. How she had moved to Medford, Oregon, <clears throat> and got out of the country and into the city. Excuse me. <clears throat> and how she had gotten women shown them how to be more involved in life as women. Those of you who are from Medford know Marianne and all the events she started and how she got us together for breakfast and she got us together for lunch and how we'd laugh and she'd get us together to do a labyrinth walk and she'd do all these things and she said, you know, I'm finding the fellowship in Medford I always wanted and all the things I've wanted out of life that I had been looking for have come true for me here. 
And I left and it was a wonderful, wonderful conference. And I think when you're in a group of women like this, it opens up, uh, it opens up our hearts and allows us to share at a level that only other women can understand. And, uh, and I treasured those times. I didn't know it was going to be the last time that uh, I went to a conference with Marianne and with Sherry. And uh, a couple of years after that, Marianne passed away um, in the fall. And it was devastating to me. She had been my sponsor for years. And, and that following February, I think it was, Sherry passed away. And I thought, what if I had been still stuck in my own importance? What if I had thought about all those things I had to do to be the great I am instead of taking time out for my program and spirituality, I would have missed the whole thing. And so every time I come to Seaside, I have those memories of them. And now there's a gal coming to the next conference that I'm going to uh, actually in a couple weeks. And she's a gal that I've sponsored now for um, 30 years. And uh, I get to see her life changing, and I get to share with her the things that have changed in my life and the dreams that are coming true. And uh, that's the deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it's, I know all conferences are great, but I think it's one of the beautiful things about women's conferences is we touch each other's hearts in a different way. Uh, as I said, I went back to school, and uh, I got my doctorate, and as a result of that, I didn't get it to get a job. I got it to prove I could. That, that was the long and short of it. And about that time, a position opened up that was exactly what I'd always wanted. And God worked in my life, and I got that position because I had that job. And, uh, and I had a wonderful time at that job. Oh, gosh, I just loved it. And then one day, um, that job ended. You know, they restructured, and I was a regional manager of a pharmacy and a health system in southern Oregon, and that job ended. And I thought, oh, God. And instead of doing that, oh, God, what's going to happen to me, I was in, oh, God, what's going to happen next? I'm not kidding you. Two days later, the phone rang. And it was an outfitter in Idaho, and he wanted me. He said, I understand that you've done fly fishing for over 50 years. And at that time, I'd done a little bit of exploratory trips for people. And he said, uh, you were recommended to me for a guy that you had, had done a months-long trip in Argentina for. And he said, I'm thinking of open up in this area in the River of No Return Wilderness in Idaho, and I'd like you to go in and, and do the exploratory trip and make the business plan and everything. And so, like two days after I left that job, I left for Idaho to get to do that, like my dream job. As a result of that job, I ended up getting to travel to Africa to do an exploratory trip for their government in Senegal. I ended up making several trips to Alaska, Costa Rica. I mean, I had this fabulous time doing what I'd always wanted to do. I finally asked somebody. I finally asked somebody, how come I'm getting to do all this? And uh, like, there's a lot of guys you could call that could do this you know, just as well as me. And they said, well, you have a reputation in the industry. And that reputation is that you do what you say you're going to do. That everybody can do the fishing part and figure out what flies to use and do that. But they can't all train the guides so that the guides learn something and still have dignity and self-respect. They don't all do the report afterwards and they don't file a business plan. They say they're going to and that yours always gets there early, not late. Those were all things I learned from you guys. 
and consequently, after I left what I thought was the job of my dreams, instead of riling and being mad at what God took away from me, I was able to accept that my journey is exactly what it's supposed to be, and I ended up with my true dream job. Uh, Julie and I have gotten to do some fishing just for fun. You know, she talks about the fifth wheel. First of all, I can't talk about what it was like and what happened now and what it's like now without mentioning Julie. You could tell from her talk last night that uh, our relationship is very special. And uh, I, I mean, for me, like the longest relationship I had before this was five years, and that was my marriage. A couple of years of that barely counted. And um, most of my relationships were very short. But Julie and I have had a, a relationship based on program, and it's just been absolutely wonderful we haven't always had easy times. We've had good times, and, and we've had challenging times, but we've always had them together. Man, we are like a real team, and, uh, and we get to have fun. We get to have fun. Uh, our average in the summer with our fifth wheel, now that I'm retired, our, our average in the summer in our fifth wheel is four or 5,000 miles a summer, and we meet people, and we do things, and, and we've gotten to go all over. We love coming to conferences like this, so anyway, um, <clears throat> a friend of mine I'd done some exploratory trips with, I said, I want to take Julie on a very special trip. <clears throat> She's not like me. Hiking in the outdoors is not her thing. But I like her to see someplace pretty. She loves to fish and can have a lot of fun without very much output. And so he suggested this trip to the Smith River in um, northern Idaho. Is that where it is? No, in Montana to the Smith River in Montana. And so I call, and they don't have any spots open on this trip. But there's a cancellation at the last minute. And Julie and I get, and we drive two days up there. And, and uh, this is a group that normally took four boats with two people to a boat. And they had eight guys. And two of the guys had canceled. We didn't know this. They do this every year. And so here come Julie and I. We don't exactly. <laughs> We didn't even look like the The guide says to Julie when we get there, they, we're coming down the ramp, and the guy says to Julie, he says, um, where are your waiters? And she says, oh, I don't need them. He said, oh, well, you know, there's areas that you're going to get really wet as we're going down to the rafts. And she says, no, you don't understand. See, you're going to row me to the fish, <laughs> and I'm going to catch them. <laughs> and she did. She had one quality that no one else on that trip had, is she listened exactly to what the guide said. That's another thing we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. On our best days, we can actually take direction from others. And so Julie's catching all the fish. And I tried to take pictures of our companions on the trip, because on my exploratory trips, I made these really nice DVDs for them to do at shows. So a surprise I usually do on trips is I make a DVD and I send them to everybody. However, when I look at them later, every single DVD, these guys are flipping us off. And so, <laughs> it was going to be really short. And so, uh, anyway, they weren't too enthused with us. We had interrupted their thing. Oh, God, we get there at night, and uh, they'd all start drinking and smoking cigars and doing their thing. And, and we understand that, so we go to our tent. Now, they, they are under the impression that tents are, are soundproof. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, they start out with interesting stories, they have a few drinks, they repeat their stories, and then they get maudlin, oh, I love you, man, oh, I love you too, <laughs> we're in 
in there, <clears throat> we are totally cracked up. And uh, <laughs> we're being a program of attraction by absenteeism. And, uh, <laughs> so in the morning, we get up, we go out there. Man, they are really, really hungover. I order my eggs sunny side up and just kind of shake them around in front of them. <laughs> this guy's really ticked off at me, and he says, I understand you're a pharmacist. I said, yes, I am. He says, well, I have a question about my medication. I wonder if you could help me with that. I said, well, absolutely. I think we're now going to be buddies, naive to the end. And, um, and so he says, well, it's... Viagra. <laughs> I'm a little taken aback and I open my mouth to say something and Julie steps in and says, Viagra? I love Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> she says, yep. She says, I put it on my tomato plants and I don't have to stake them all year. <laughs> It took them a while to warm up to us, but I have to tell you what happened at the end of that trip. They give certain awards, and they gave this little rock with a fly on it to Julie as the person they'd most like to go on another fishing trip with. <laughs> so we've had a lot of fun in our fifth wheel. We've had a lot of fun in our program and, and sponsoring and that type of thing. I've had some exciting things happen. You know, when, on my one-year AA birthday, I was actually, I lived in Chico, and I was actually in Shady Cove, Oregon, and I wasn't too thrilled with sobriety. And I said, God, send me a sign that I should be sober. And I was trout fishing, and God sent me a seven-and-a-half-pound steelhead that I landed on a trout rod. I thought, I'm staying sober. <laughs> so this summer, Julie and I were in our fifth wheel. We were up uh, north of Spokane at I can't remember where, but we were north... Oh, yeah, we were in Deer Park, Washington, just a lovely park, and, and I was in a golf tournament there with all these guys, and um, I got a hole-in-one. <laughs> <laughs> I said, God still wants me to stay sober. <laughs> so that's the, kind of, that's the kind of way this has been for me. I'll tell you what Julie and I are doing this week. You know, we got to come here. We got to visit with all of you. And, um, and then we're going to leave here and go up to Tacoma, Washington. We have tickets to Elton John. Woo! You know, when I got sober, I thought, well, I have to do this. My life is going bad, but I'm sure all the fun is over. <laughs> and now I'm going to Elton John. Julie has an outfit for me. <laughs> I have white pants my white tennis shoes with purple laces, a brightly colored shirt, and a mink fur coat, dark glasses with flamingos on the corners. She likes to dress me. <laughs> Don't we have fun? And I get all this just because I'm not stealing your stuff and puking on your girlfriend and being generally obnoxious, you know. I have a mirror. I have a mirror in my life today. Um, I told you a little bit about my twin sister. My twin sister, three years ago, I think it was, got really sick, and, 
and she was suffering from end-stage alcoholism, and, and uh, I went down to Sacramento, and she was so sick none of the local treatment centers would take her. And uh, I went down there, and, and Julie got Betty Ford to take her, and we drove her down there, and she went to Betty Ford, and, and she recovered, and she stayed sober for about a year. Um, she didn't need a sponsor, and she wasn't too keen on the steps. And so eventually she drank, and being my twin sister, I get to see what would have happened to me. And so uh, just recently at a conference, I got a call that, that um, you know, that she was back in the intensive care unit and uh, was suffering from her alcoholism. And she ended up being in the intensive care unit for two weeks and in the hospital another two weeks and then in a skilled nursing facility. And I get to see what it would have looked like if I hadn't found you guys because um, by the time she left there, she was pretty sure drinking wasn't really her problem. In fact, I offered to take her back down to Betty Ford, and she said, no, they make you get up in the morning. <laughs> but it's a sad thing, you know, and, and she may die of this disease, but it was killing me. I was down there. I was at the hospital 12 hours a day, and it was killing me. Um, seeing my twin sister go through that, it was looking at, like looking in a very bad mirror. And uh, so I finally had to let her go, <clears throat> and I had to give her to God because she has a higher power, too, and we'll have to see how that turns out. And in contrast to that, that could have been me. I don't judge her, you know. I don't have anything negative to say about the fact that she can't stay sober. But I can thank God every day that I have what I have. And you know, when I talked in the beginning about I didn't get what I wanted, I always thought I wanted something that was out there that was just quite beyond my reach. And I found by following this design for living, by sharing my life with all of you, I have exactly the life that I wanted all along. Thank you very much. <laughs>